Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's no reason to panic. The business editor looked into the camera and delivered these words to the British public on the BBC's flagship bulletin. The problem was, he just revealed something well worth panicking about. A distressed Northern Bank needed an emergency bailout. The next day, there was a run on the bank because, yes, everybody panicked. The broadcaster who broke the story was Gil Peck. Gil Peck is fictional. He's a scoop-obsessed journalist with a manic reporting energy and a penchant for cocaine, who rises to the top suddenly because of reporting on the financial crash, screwing over friends and family in the process. The central character you know, does have some of my traits. Everybody in the book is an amalgam. They're not autobiographical books. This is Robert Peston, influential journalist and two-time novelist. 16 years ago exactly, he really did stare into the barrel of the camera as he revealed the Bank of England was bailing out Northern Rock. To provide some emergency funding, there's any reason for depositors at Northern Rock to panic. He says he doesn't think he caused there to be a run on the banks, but he sensed his story was the trigger. Over the next year, Peston's reporting of the banking crisis was the thing everyone was talking about and Peston himself became the face and the voice of the story. A decade and a half on, Peston is the political editor of ITV and has his own TV chat show. As regular listeners of the podcast will remember, I've known Robert Peston for years. I started working on his chat show at the beginning of 2018. I loved my time there, though sometimes it was slightly chaotic. Like, on my first ever programme, Peston told the guest I'd booked that it was fine to say a bad word on air. I'm going to use a a bad word. Can I use that in the morning on a Sunday? So she said the F word at 10.52 on a Sunday morning. He looked me up, down, up, and said, do you fuck? And I said... Uh, <laughs> Apparently we can't say that, I've just been. <laughs> oh, well. On Wednesday evening, I went back to my old stomping ground to speak to his team and have a chat with Robert. OK, I am standing behind the scenes at Television Centre on the set of Peston on a Wednesday evening. I can see the blue and the pink, the grey sofas, I can see it all, I can even see Robert Peston himself. As well as being to Peston, I want to know what his team think of him as well. So I'm here to find out. Who do you have on tonight? The Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, Labour's Bridget Phillipson. We have Mustafa Suleiman, who founded DeepMind. So just walking past the infamous green room where guests sometimes have a few drinks after the show. And you hear, sometimes hear, what they really think about things that they wouldn't say on air. If I just go through this door here, we'll go into the gallery and you can hear Robert Peston asking questions. 
So why do your Tory colleagues hate the closures? From Politico, I'm Aggie Chambray, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're meeting Robert Peston. We talked about the state of the country. In, in some quite fundamental respects, we are in trouble. How politicians today compare to the 90s. I would argue that the calibre of politicians in general is lower today. In the past, being too addicted to scoops. And I think he assumed that this was just a conversation between friends and then I did put it in the paper and they were all incredibly upset. How his OCD affected his younger life. Pretty exhausting and, and, and sort of debilitating. And grief. Yeah, I can see how traumatised I was for years. Robert Peston, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. So, you've launched a podcast, you've formed a band, you've got not one but two books out in the near future, your TV show is back this week from its summer break, and your political editor of ITV. Are you okay? Uh, Yeah, I think so. (laughs) It's been uh, a slightly busy period and some would say that I use work as uh, displacement from other things but uh, yeah I mean truthfully I uh, probably have annoyed those I care about most by having taken a little bit too much recently and so the resolution for Jewish New Year is no more books for quite some time and no new projects for quite some time and a bit more socialising and spending time with the people I love. Okay, I'm sure I'm sure they'll be very pleased. But why an economics podcast? Are you bored of politics? If you sort of want to go back to your roots? No, no, I love politics, and there's it's no there's no downgrading of my work in that space as ITV political editor and presenter of the Wednesday night show. It's simply that a you know economics and business have been sort of adult lifelong interests. You know, and if I look at the West in general at the moment, one of the biggest challenges is how do we get growth going again? You know, unless we can restart our economies, and this is particularly true of, an, of a UK which has been limping along since the crash of 2007-8, whether it's in our private lives or in terms of public services... We just can't have the lives we think we deserve. Are you worried about the lack of growth? You sort of, you're, you sort of seem. Yeah, it's the big issue. I mean, it's the it's the big issue of our age, and that's what. Uh, so, I mean, the re- so the reason I'm doing uh, a podcast which is called "The Rest Is Money" is because, uh, in my uh, view, the shortage of money around the place in countries like the UK um, is, you know, the big challenge for anybody in power. It is the big challenge for this government and it'll be the big challenge for whoever wins the election. Britain is currently only the tiniest of tilts away from a recession, a bank economist said last week. Our economy and our politics have never really felt like they recovered from the seismic collapse 15 years ago. The closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Shock and panic evident on the faces of those on the trading floor. A day, the UK's biggest banks are rescued by the British taxpayer. It felt like Peston was never off TV during that period. He constantly had the latest twist or turn of the crash, breaking news, literally moving markets. His stories were thrilling and often controversial. You only have to glance at the comments on BBC articles from the time to see how the rage and uncertainty of the crash was prone to being turned back on Peston himself. As though it was him who'd caused it all. Lehman Brothers is going bankrupt. 
and financial markets from Asia to Europe are doing their utmost to prevent Monday from turning from dark to black. It's an experience that's clearly stuck with him. His new thriller, Crash, is set against a backdrop of, you guessed it, the financial crash. In it, the protagonist, Gil Peck, is accosted on the streets. He's got this new book out, which is sort of set in the chaos of the crash. I'm it. Oh, yeah. Robert Peston's co-presenter, Anushka Astana. Is Gil Peck Robert Peston? Yes, he is. I wanted to know more about the anger Peston faced. Oh, yeah. I mean, people were absolutely furious. I mean, it was quite an eye-opener, really, that there were these quite powerful people in the city, in government, right, who basically took the view that British people, you know, weren't grown up enough to know quite what a mess bankers had made of things. And, you know, after I did my story about Northern Rock running out of cash, we had... MPs, regulators, people who ran banks, people who ran trade, trade associations, ringing up my bosses at the BBC saying, shut this man down. You know, they were basically saying, you know, this is the sort of financial equivalent of wartime and giving the British people the information about how bad it is is too dangerous. I just thought this was so patronising and fortunately my bosses thought it was patronising and they gave me licence just to sort of report what was happening. Separate from that, you know, you know, I remember there was one particular conference I went to, which actually was filled with sort of people in the housing market, estate agents, and my goodness, they were angry with me. And what does that look like? Just incredibly rude and hostile. I mean, it was uh, it was a very. Uh, I mean, it's good. It's a, it's a good thing that I've got pretty thick skin, uh, and I can look after myself. It was quite a fraught time. And obviously, intimidation is taken to the next level. I hope fictionalized in Crash. But did you ever feel intimidated? I mean, I can't claim that. Uh, you know, I was unrelaxed when, after reporting, you know, whatever it was, eight nine o'clock. I think it was on September. I think it was September the thirteenth. 2007, I reported that um, Northern Rock had gone cap in hands to the Bank of England for a bailout. And then the next morning, I was rung up and said, have you seen these pictures of people queuing to get their money out of Hello Northern Rock? Welcome. Thousands of Northern Rock savers have queued for hours at branches to empty their accounts. Many more have withdrawn cash by the internet. Despite reassurances from the bank... Over yeah, the it was bizarre, savings, surreal, and, and, and a source of stress. Um, and I had to do quite a lot of self-examination to be clear in my own mind that I had done the responsible thing in reporting and how I'd and how I'd reported it and I was clear in my own mind subsequently I did quite a lot of work on working trying to trying to explain why there was this run and in the end I was able to reassure myself unfortunately other people objectively were able to also reassure me that to say this was quotes my fault was just wrong there were some lots of structural reasons why there was this run so in a sense my story was the trigger but not the cause of the run that was a nerve-wracking moment undoubtedly the chancellor has said don't panic so did the captain of the titanic <laughs> that went down and and so what i've sort of accidentally done i suppose is sort of conflate you and gil peck but there are obviously similarities between your characters how how much are there similarities? He's sort of, especially in book one, he tries to get a scoop at his sister's funeral. I mean, he successfully gets a scoop at his sister's funeral. Was that you? Did you make any mistakes betraying family, friends? Were you that scoop obsessed when you were younger? Most of what Gil does in terms of 
what you might call ignoring normal boundaries and crossing lines is is more extreme than anything I've ever done. But, you know, there was a time uh, in the 90s in particular where I, I can't remember, I went out for dinner with uh, some friends and, you know, one of the people there told us all something. And I think he assumed that this was just a conversation between friends and then I did put it in the paper and they were all incredibly upset. I mean, it was a good lesson, as, 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 as it were. I'd become too addicted to the job, too addicted to getting ahead of the pack and it was one of those moments where I just realised um, you've got to put friendships and the private side of your life ahead of the professional life. And I mean, I think one of the things about journalism, particularly... Uh, and, and this was really true in the 90s. You know, th- there was such a sort of got to beat the pack kind of culture. It was and definitely not just for me. And I have to say, I know quite a lot of journalists who did way worse things than what I've just described. It was just addictive. And, you know, you've got to recognise when you've got an addiction and then you've got to cure yourself. And, and do you, are you addicted now? No. I mean, I think some people, you know family uh, might say that I'm a bit too obsessed with work and I'm acutely conscious of how much work does matter to me. Peston's creation pack, I mentioned, would do anything for a story. He even tried phone hacking once or twice, although he didn't really enjoy it. Was that something that actually was around quite a lot in the 90s? Did you see that? I mean, it, it actually notes in the book it was done at papers, but not the uh, FC, which I assume is the FT. I was aware of phone hacking. I never did it. I always thought it was completely wrong. I was also aware of papers hiring private detectives to you know, get hold of people's bank statements and phone records and all that kind of stuff. I mean... Look, if you're trying to find out something about a terrorist or somebody stealing money from a pension fund or something of that sort, then there may be occasions where you may have to cross this or that line in the public interest to get a story. As it it say, as it happens, I've never hacked a phone, never done anything that is illegal to get a story. I don't think there's ever... Just just invading somebody's private life for a salacious front-page story, there's absolutely no justification um, for ever breaking the law or crossing those sorts of moral lines to get that kind of information. I was... um, I ran the um, city department at the Sunday Telegraph many, many years ago, and I had a very... a really excellent team, and on a couple of occasions, you know, members of my team said could we use this or that private investigator and I just said you know our readers think that if we've got information we've got it because of our work as journalists not because we've hired private detectives so I just said straightforwardly no so obviously I was aware this stuff was going on I mean truthfully until the Guardian did its astonishing disclosures of quite how much phone hacking was going on I didn't know the scale of it. As I say, I knew it happened, I just didn't realise that it was happening on such an industrial scale. If a rogue reporter decides to behave in that fashion, I'm not sure that there's an awful lot more I could have done. I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. 
there was something that struck me, the closeness between Gil and some of the politicians and aides. I mean, he's literally having an affair with one of them. Is that something that you've ever worried about? Whatever kind of journalism you do, you need sources. And this whole question of how you get people to give you information is a really interesting one. I mean, you know, I remember very early on as a young reporter cultivating various people and thinking why, you know, I mean, I was delighted, but I would ask them questions and they would tell me things that they really shouldn't have told me. And I remember at the time thinking, it's really interesting why people are prepared to share really quite sensitive and in some cases really quite damaging information with you. When I started in journalism, the power of print papers, the press, was a multiple of what it is today. I think some of the people who gave you stories then sort of liked the sense of power, that they were somehow a player in seeing this enormous thing and creating this great thunder crash. But the, the other side of this is that you would get to know people who were sources really very well. And truthfully, particularly in a sort of pressurised world, when you get to know people who are sources, you can, you've got to be careful, right? Because, you, you know, we're humans. We either like people or we don't like people. And quite often, when you're getting to know somebody in a position of power or position of knowledge, not necessarily the same thing, you can get quite fond of them. This question of how you retain objectivity is, is a hard one. I mean, different times in my life, I've actually briefly worked... Uh, in the city. And, and I remember there was one incredibly successful fund manager who never, ever, ever would talk to the bosses of companies that he was investing in. And he said, the reason I won't talk to them is because if it turns out I like them, it might cloud my judgment. It sort of captures for me the dilemma for any journalist. You may have to do stories that are damaging to people you quite like. I mean, you just, you know, it's just a fact of life. And quite often in, in, you know, in my time, I have had to do, not had to do, I've done stories that, you know, people who, you know, I had a relationship with in the sense of just, you know, being friendly with, these stories were very upsetting to them. You know, senior politicians who, you know, one had known for years of, you know, all main parties, you'd just get to know them and you'd be chatty and friendly and then you'd write, write or broadcast something about them and, it, you know, it would be damaging to them and they w wouldn't really understand. But you've just got to do it. There are always these pressures and grown-up politicians know that and get over it and some of them don't. I remember, I'm not going to name the individual, but there was one, there was one very, very, very senior politician I wrote a column about them and literally six or seven months later came up to me at a party and started berating me for this thing that I'd written months earlier. And it was really not, you know, it was not the most critical thing. I've ever, and, and then there was another politician, again, who I, I, I shouldn't name, who has literally never spoken to me since I wrote some story. P people who feel hurt by this stuff, sometimes they just don't, they don't get it and they don't get over it. Do you ever think back, OK, I kind of got it wrong at the beginning, I shouldn't have got so close to people or I should have got, sort of shouldn't have done that story or do you just think it all comes out in the wash? Uh, I'm mostly take the latter view. The times I regret are when, um, despite the fact I knew that this was just friends talking, I treated it as though it was work, right? You know, at the end of the day, a contact knows that the relationship is 
a professional one. If somebody says to you, I'm telling you this and it's not for use, you don't use it, right? But if you're having a professional conversation and somebody doesn't say that to you, you use it, right? But equally, if somebody else tells you something that is going to you know, damage somebody who have a different, you know, who's, who's, you know, who's just going to damage somebody you've known for years. You, you know, I, I always go out of my way. I try. I never, I've never, I don't think, you know, doubtless somebody will, if they hear this, ring me up and say, that's not right. But I don't think I've ever done a story that has been damaging or embarrassing to somebody without letting, in a sense, the target of the story know in advance. I think that's a sort of courtesy. But, you know, a story's a story, I'm afraid. It's just one of those sort of horrible phrases, but it is a sort of fact of life. And is it made more difficult when people like, you know, your ex-colleagues at ITV, Amber de Botton, Allegra Stratton, go to number 10? Is it sort of made trickier by the revolving door? So, yeah, you're right. You've hit on some recent examples where it is definitely, you know, Allegra and Amber, both very close colleagues, and then they go off and work for the government. And, you know, they're not exactly the enemy at that point, but they have crossed the road. You can't do them favours. You just can't. And, you know, periodically, one has and does do stories that they hate, but, you know, sort of tough. And it's not just friendships or relationships that Peston has to worry about with The Wrong Story. There's now a musical career at stake too. Robert Peston may strike you as an unlikely punk rocker, but punk rocker he apparently is. The Centrist Dads Band, it, it really is called that, not only includes Peston, but former Chancellor Ed Balls too. It was formed months ago, but they only had their first foray into public consciousness last weekend, much to the joy and amusement of political Twitter. That was the debut gig of Centrist Dad with um, <laughs> Peston on uh, vocals. I was on the drums. The four of us who were in this band didn't set out to do it in order to play a concert that would get a bit of attention. We set out to do it because, you know, we're all sad dads who love music and just wanted to have a bit of, you know, bit of therapeutic fun together it is actually you know, quite good though sorry? it's quite good uh, well, it's but i mean but literally but it, we do it because we love rehearsing and we just you know it's so so creating time for friends and creating time for family so really on the way here i was thinking to myself is she going to ask me about you know bulls being the drummer of the band given a course that at different stages in my life i mean so the so so ed balls is a classic example of you know, the sort of dilemmas that one faces as a journalist because, you know, we were on the FT together as, as sort of youngish reporters. So I've known him. I've known Ed for something like 30 years. So Ed is, Ed is one of those people where, um, you know, you have to be very, very careful in managing, you know, for years, you know, because he was advisor to Gordon Brown when I was political to the FT and then he was schools minister later on. And just that with somebody like Ed... Those are the hardest relationships to manage because, truthfully, he is a friend. But equally, he's been in positions where I'm going to be reporting on him and his, you know, him and his boss, Gordon Brown, or then when he's education secretary. And so those are the hardest bits of reporting are, you know, when they relate to people who are friend from a different wo- friends from a different world and they you know that is hard there's no you know that, that you know and you just have to be very very transparent with those people about what you're doing 
And to an extent, you've got to be transparent with your, you know, the people that you are broadcasting to or writing for. And it, it, but those that is hard. I mean, but we're all humans, you know. And so you you can't when you go into journalism, you know, decide I'm only going to be in that particular bit of journalism where there's no chance that anybody I'm friendly with is ever going to turn up. It doesn't, you know, life doesn't work like that. Coming up, Peston struggles with obsessive compulsive disorder, the state of Britain and the calibre of today's politicians. Gosh, so much variety. Don't go away. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One of the things I most wanted to ask Peston about is OCD. Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. It's well known, but really badly understood. Largely because almost no one in the public eye talks honestly and openly about what it's actually like to have it. But Robert Peston is an exception to that, and has spoken previously about suffering from the condition as a young person, as well as attributing the condition to his lead character in his novel. So I asked how he manages it now. Um, so it was very debilitating when I was a teenager and I had it in an era, you know, these things were just hardly recognised and certainly not sort of properly diagnosed at all. And weirdly, I mean, I, you know, my my version and I, you know, my version of it was I would get up. I think I was sort of 12, 13, 14 at the time. And for some reason or other, I would just not be able to go to sleep. And when everybody else in the house was asleep, this would be at one, two in the morning, I'd sort of go around the house, check the gas was off, check the back doors were locked, check the front door was locked, go back to bed, be certain that I hadn't checked them properly, get up again. And this would go on for about two or three hours. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued that, no, that my parents obviously, I mean, I must have been quiet enough or they, they were in a different part of the house. Anyway, they never heard me, they never heard me uh, do this. Yeah, it was pretty exhausting and, and, and sort of debilitating. And then just over time, I did, you know, I discovered strategies for managing it, limiting it. I mean, my OCD is worst when I'm under pressure. Uh, if I'm if I'm suffering from quite a lot of sort of stress, I'll do that weird thing of double, triple, quadruple checking things like doors being locked and then there are times when I just feel anxious and I you know one thing that is a bit like me and Gil is that um if I'm feeling anxious he he has certain chants that make him feel a little bit better um and I have different ones and I just thought actually you know it's important um a I thought you know I wanted a central character who was perhaps a bit different from other central characters in these sorts of thrillers and maybe that was one way of making him distinctive and it was also something I could write about with, you know, a degree of authenticity because it's, you know, something I've had to manage in my own life. Peston's not only talked about his OCD, but also said, like his character, he suspects he too has ADHD, at least residually. It is true, from my experience and talking to those on the show, that Peston does operate at a faster pace to other people. I can just imagine his racing mind. Anushka Astana again. Like he's got an idea, he takes the idea, he runs off in one direction, then it comes across another idea and off he is in another direction. And somehow, 
because I have to say he's got a very big brain. He manages to hold it all in there and turn it into great journalism. What are you going to do for, with it? And she will say, I don't really know because MPs haven't told me about the kind of Brexit or way forward they would support. So that word crisis might be an understatement. It is effectively in no, the single no, market. No. You there, know that there, it is. There are plenty of... Let me give you an example. I'm Kish Coria. Um, I'm the programme editor at Peston. You'll be talking to Robert about one thing, and it's very, very obvious that he's thinking about something much, much brainier, like what's happening to pension markets or something like that, and you get used to the idea that this is somebody who's always thinking about something that's probably beyond your understanding but that's kind of the fun my name's lily donna mansbridge and i'm a producer in peston this is something sort of kish talked about he sort of operates at a sort of faster pace than other people yeah yeah definitely like you you get to know how fast he thinks and like when to like how to communicate and stuff like effectively especially when we're talking about numbers and we're talking about data so yeah he definitely like his mind's going a million miles an hour it's why he rose to prominence in the first place outpacing other journalists and editors, explaining and analysing in a way that made sense to a nervous general public. But one of the things that I'm really interested in as well is sort of we're 15 years out from the financial crash and it sort of feels like it's the second coming of Robert Peston. We're sort of going back into like this financial chaos, but Robert Peston's here to sort of do analysis and tell us that everything's going to be okay. That's interesting. I haven't thought about it like that. Um, but yeah, it's very Robert Times. How much do you think he's going to mention the economy tonight? A whole load. Ten times. Oh, I'd go 17. It's going to be like in the 50s, I'd say. Like, the economy is front and centre again. And suddenly everyone's interested in interest rates and the Bank of England. But I think what Robert would probably say is that the impact of the crash has never really gone away. Everything that's happened since 2008 has been one long story. We're, we're still living with it today. Does it matter there's a perception that Britain's broken at the moment? This is all quite tricky. I mean, plainly, you know, we are not, you know, completely um, paralysed or hobbled. But equally plainly, quite a lot is not working as it should be. You know, in, in some quite fundamental respects, we are in trouble. I do understand why people are demoralised because, you know, we've been living through very difficult times, COVID, sharpest squeeze on living standards for decades. Um, you know, schools not opening because buildings are crumbling, um, transport, trains that don't run on time, roads that are way too congested, a health service that's got record backlogs with operations. You know, a lot of the things that are the basics of a decent civilized society are not working properly um and we can't you know we shouldn't shut our eyes to this do you ever think or have you ever considered just going into politics and trying to sort everything out that way i mean whenever people ask me that question i do think to myself god we're in a terrible state if people think that i'm the answer to a uh, you know if i'm a possible answer to britain's problems but the answer is i don't think i am right for that world i think my skills are in you know other areas but also there is a sort of discipline that I would struggle with which is the great thing about being a journalist is you know you can say broadly what you think and the problem with being an MP and I would really struggle with this is you've got to vote for stuff that you know deep in your heart 
is wrong. I don't think you can go into politics and be a serial rebel because I think that is self-indulgent. I think party discipline is important, and I but I think I would really struggle with um, you know essentially voting for stuff that I th- think is wrong. You said people come up to you in public spaces. Do people come up to you on the street and say, will you go into politics? Sometimes they do, yes. Sometimes they do. I mean, in the past, particularly when I pissed people off, people have also just told me to climb into a deep hole and never come out again. So occasionally people are uh, in the... I mean, fortunately, that doesn't happen very often now, but in the past, people have been absolutely horrible. On, um, on the street, people have said climb into a hole? That kind of thing, yeah. It, has, it, doesn't, it hasn't happened. I mean, the problem with doing my kind of journalism is you do say things that upset people sometimes. And, you know, I mean, the great thing about British people is that mostly we're very polite and mostly if people want to be malicious and nasty they'll do it you know on social media uh uh or in an email or a letter and they 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 do it less in public but yeah when people get angry they they you know they they i've been shouted out in the streets yes i mean it's you know i'm listen i'm lucky to do a job that i love so i just take the rough with the smooth you've been around a long time what do you think of sort of this caliber of politicians compared to those operating in the 90s i think it's very hard to answer this question without sounding patronising, um, which I really don't want to be. You know, honestly, I do think that when you're young, you are more impressionable, and you know, you get, and you know, all of us, you know, get a bit more worldly and cynical as as as, as we get older, and so screening out just the impact of age in terms of how you assess people is really quite difficult but if I do try and screen it out I would argue that the caliber of politicians in general is lower today than it was in the 80s and 90s I think there were more people uh, with broader experience and a greater sense of genuine public duty. So it's not to say there aren't amazing politicians, really talented politicians around today. I think there are, but I think there are fewer. And something that comes across in both your books and also having worked with you, you really, you really don't like lying. You don't like it when politicians lie. Do you think that politicians lie more now than they did? I uh, don't know. Uh, I think that they endeavour not to answer questions more than they did. You know, uh, if I go back to the 90s, you could have more interesting on-the-record conversations. I mean, it's it's always been possible to have decent off-the-record conversations, although I think there are these days some politicians who can't even answer a question, you know, particularly clearly and straightforwardly on background but uh, the thing that is that is frustrating today and I, I do think politicians should think very hard about this because I think they're doing them, they're themselves no good is too many of them when you interview them on shows like mine just dodge and avoid in way too um, it, it's too conspicuous and I think people you know when, when people come up to me one of the things they routinely say to me, they say, how on earth do you put up with these people not answering your questions? And it's the thing that I hear most often. That should give politicians pause for thought because trust in politics has been falling and falling and falling. 
And if you look at what happened in America not that long ago, storming of the Capitol, you, you know, you cannot take democracy for granted. The health of the system depends on people having confidence in the institutions and in the people who serve in the institutions. And the more that people feel that politicians don't answer the questions, the more disillusioned they'll get. However attractive it may seem to a politician to dodge and prevaricate, I just think they've got to think about the long term and think about ways of answering legitimate questions. Not revealing what your true views are is frustrating to people. Okay. My favourite episode that I ever worked on uh, when, we, when we did your show was when you interviewed, I don't know if you remember it, Professor Green and Hilary Benn. And it, and it was this beautiful episode, I think it was one of my final episodes, about grief. And you all talk so movingly about grief. Time is a healer, but the sad thing about that is really the reason that time heals is because every day you, be, you, you move a little bit further from that person that you lost and you know your life is filled with new memories which it should be and i just wanted to ask you about it because I, I wonder whether you find it sort of difficult to talk about grief publicly and whether you think we all handle grief wrong so the further uh further away i am from uh the death of um sean busby who uh was uh my wife and um she died in September 2012. I mean, the further away I am from it, the more clearly I can see how traumatised I was for years. Um, she, 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 you know, she'd also been ill with cancer for years, and I think that also contributed to uh, my trauma and... and um, you know, that of my children, the people who loved her. And and um, I had no preparation for it. Probably should have done, probably should have thought about it ahead of time, but I didn't. Um, and I, 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 I don't think, actually, we talk about the impact of, of grief enough um it you know um it does um massively mess with your brain and your emotions and everything um and i was you know i was sort of high functioning but a mess uh for quite a long time and maybe now i can you know maybe you know i'm so i'm lucky to have you know Wonderful partner in Charlotte Edwards, wonderful children, you know, uh, uh, from my marriage to Sean, from my lovely relationship with Charlotte. I'm, you know, and these are the things that give meaning to your life. Um, these are the people who give meaning to your life. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think you're right that um, sort of grief is a sort of, it's a sort of dirty secret. Nobody wants to talk about it because nobody really wants to talk about death either. You know, these are these big, you know, we, we can't run away from these things. They're always there, but we, we try to run away from them and it's, um, it's definitely not healthy. Do you, do, you, do you feel yourself sort of talking about it more now or...? I talked about it a lot. I uh, couldn't stop talking about it after Sean died. And I, but I think a lot of the way that I talked about it was part of... Um, part of the sort of madness 
I, I, I spend quite a lot of time thinking about it and trying to sort of understand what happened to me and those around me. It's, I, I, I think I engage more in private reflection than, than more public reflection at the moment. Maybe at some point I ought to, I ought to write or you know, do something more publicly about it. But you know, it's complicated but important. And you, and, you, and you mentioned that you have a new partner who is obviously a brilliant, brilliant journalist. Do you ever share interview tips with each other? She's obviously a legendary interviewer. I, I mean, she is a brilliant interviewer, actually. I'm always amazed by um, a, a, how she persuades people to reveal, you know, interviewing is a lot about understanding people. And I do think that her pieces give you an insight into people that actually lots and lots of interviews don't provide she yeah I mean I think particularly early on when we got together we talked a lot about techniques and I definitely learned a lot I've definitely learned a lot from her whether she's learned anything from me I have no idea but I've definitely learned from her and the only other thing I wanted to ask uh, was you are obviously we've kind of touched on it but you are really really famous to the point that my mum recognized you in a cafe once and (laughs) texted me to say I've just seen Robert Peston but do you find it weird that your job is basically just reporting the news and as a byproduct of that, people on the street know who you are? So it's a bit annoying sometimes. So look, I'm not complaining about being known and recognised um, because, you know, it gives me a good living and I love what I do and so I couldn't possibly complain. Um, it is, you know, I was in... I was in newspapers for quite a long time and you can have you can develop a reasonable reputation for what you do but never be particularly famous and I don't know uh whether I uh regret being uh, you know a more publicly um known person in terms of you know what some people regard as normal life i suppose there are drawbacks in uh, in being recognizable i remember uh, sean actually my late wife saying to me once so i've got really something went wrong in marks and our local marks and spencer and uh i can't remember what it was but they it's, it's uh, got the prices wrong or something and I was about to get angry and she said if you get angry in this shop it's going to be in the Daily Mail don't do it you said at the very beginning my very first question that you promised friends and family that you won't write books for a long time you're 63 have you ever thought about retiring uh, no I, I mean I'm, I think one of the things I've said repeatedly is you know to you is uh, you know I love what I do um, and so long as people you know, remain moderately interested in what I do. I just want to keep going. Um, so, um, I mean, I don't think I'm an old man in a hurry. I'm just, an, you know, an old bloke who likes what they're doing. And, you know, so long as I'm not boring people, I'm going to continue to do it. Robert Peston, thank you so much. So that's Robert Peston, novelist, broadcaster, podcaster, not to mention lead singer of a new band. He told me that the point of an interview is not to get an amazing soundbite. It's to help you try and understand the individual, if they're worth understanding. He's most revealing to me in the way he describes himself. Thick-skinned, not the answer to Britain's problems. Fascinated by growth, AI, previously traumatised, obsessed with work and using it as a displacement. He may say he's no longer addicted to the news or to scoops, 
but he's obviously not going anywhere soon. And as Britain teeters on the edge of recession, you'll probably hear even more from him in the months to come. Just remember, there is no reason to panic. Thanks for listening to this episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, please follow us, leave us a nice review or even share it on social media. My handle is at Agnes Chambray and I'm really trying to get my followers up. My producers this week were Robert Nicholson and Artemis Irvin of Whistledown Productions. Here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. Don't forget you can go back and listen to old episodes, including hearing more about my previous life in TV news or Alva's interview with Peston's chat show rival, Laura Koonsberg. Alva will be back next week with an episode on the upcoming by-election in Glasgow. See you then. I imagine when people listen to this, they'll think I'm very boring.